Hello, I am Randy Andrews and I'm with Erica Christie today as we delve deep into the casting, the background, and more about the score from the film Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Welcome again, Erica. It's great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being here last time, and I'm looking forward to another round with you. All right. <laughs> so we're getting into Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome today. What was your first experience with this movie? You know, I was so young that I don't think I could put an age to it. So I'm going to guess probably five, six, seven, which is a bit young for a PG-13 movie, but it's, it's the kind of movie that I like, so I watched it a lot. Uh, it was definitely my first experience with like a dystopian post-apocalyptic feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, not that I knew those terms at the time, obviously, but it was definitely my first time seeing that sort of thing. Uh, I always liked the, the bleakness. I liked the costumes. I liked the actors and kind of outra how outrageous everything was. Uh, and I also liked the campiness in this one. As far as the Mad Max films goes, this one's a bit campy and I kind of like that too. <laughs> I agree. It's actually, like, even for me, it's one of my first experiences with the Mad Max world and it is probably actually still my favorite Mad Max movie because mm -hmm. it has so many fun stuff to it it's got that action it's got the racing across the desert it's got some really fun stuff to it so yeah I, I, I like it too <laughs> and it seems like the sci-fi channel before it became Siffy um, <laughs> It was one of those movies they showed all the time. And it seemed like it was every month. But, you know, I just, I fell in love with this, like, post-apocalyptic world. And and from then on, you know, I started watching other stuff, like Waterworld, which eventually we'll get into that, too. <laughs> so, but I really thought that Mel Gibson did a really good job with this role. And it gave him some real... Uh, challenges even to his acting chops and and there was like a great range that he really had with the film and I mean this actually gave you the first notion that it connected to the first movie because you didn't know in the road warrior that he had been a cop but in this one they asked him what his background was and that he was a, a police officer and that he had come this way. And I thought it was really interesting that even, like, the character Ant ent Entity, which was, of course, Tina Turner, um, she was supposed to drive a vehicle, and all the vehicles were built using a manual transmission. And Tina Turner, 
she couldn't drive a manual. And so the car equipped had a automatic transmission that had to be constructed for that. So I thought that was kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I absolutely love Tina Turner in this movie. Um, I, she's just like emblazoned in my memory. I mean, especially being so young and seeing her, she was outrageous and she was loud and she was in charge of, you know, barter town. And then she has this whole thing with master blaster. Um, who's really in charge of our barter town. I like that part. Uh, I do have a few friends who are terrified of Tina Turner because <laughs> being like me, being a young kid and seeing her in this, and then a few years prior to this, seeing her in Tommy. And they said <laughs> that, that seeing her in these two movies scared them so much as children that they are still terrified of her. Huh. Like, I was never terrified of her. And in general, I wasn't terrified of movies. I just thought she was fantastic. And I wish she was actually in the movie more. She's oh, really yeah. only, only in a few scenes. And I thought she did a wonderful job. Yeah, and she has that, she has like a flair for the dramatic, mm. um, even though she was not well into the film, but uh, the cool thing about it was that, you know, they used her music in the movie, you know, they they had her theme in there, and uh, <laughs> I really found it funny that the the dress she wore, it was a steel male dress. And so it weighed more than 121 pounds. That's a heavy dress. That is a very heavy dress. <laughs> <laughs> it looks fantastic, but that is a very heavy dress. Yeah. It, and I mean, yeah, she just, she had to wear it and <laughs> deal with that. And then what I found interesting is that the hair that she has in the movie isn't even hers. Like it's oh, not yeah, her real yeah. hair. It, it definitely looked like a wig. I mean, it was fantastic, but it definitely looked like a wig with how big it is and how long it was and how fluffy it was. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, she had to shave her head and she had no problem with that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then um, I found this really interesting that, you know, when you when you look at the the movie poster artwork for this film, um, it was the last done, last one done by Richard Amsel, or is that Armsel? No, it's Amsel. Uh, he did like movie posters such as like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I think he did that one. And then he did like several other ones that you have like this like drawing, and uh, you have this like pale look to things. I don't know. I appreciate that kind of artwork. So mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of cool. Um, oh, and even Jane Fonda, she was considered for anti-entity. What do you think of that role would have been like? That would have been very, very different. <laughs> I mean, not saying that she would have done a good job, but I think Tina like really fit, uh, like, just like what they were going for in the film. They needed somebody who was outrageous and powerful. And, you know, when having to <clears throat> kind of subjugate herself to Master Blaster, you could still kind of see the pride and the strength in her, even when she was saying that he was in charge. And I don't know if it would have come across the same if it was Jane Fonda that was doing it. Yeah, I agree. And then did you also notice that because Tina Turner was in this movie, this movie was the first in the franchise to actually have U.S. funding because all the other ones, of course, were made in Australia. 
Uh, I could, I could definitely see that. Uh, I think I'm different from a lot of Mad Max fans in that I actually, like you, I believe I saw Thunderdome before I saw the previous two. And because I was a little kid, I did not know that it was the third film in a trilogy. And there's a lot of Mad Max fans who don't like Thunderdome. And I was probably a teenager before I saw Mad Max and Road Warrior. And I actually didn't like them the first time I saw them. And I think I just... <laughs> Like, as far as the style went, I just didn't get it until I was a little bit older and kind of get Thunderdome out of my head. And that's when I kind of realized I can completely see why Mad Max fans, there's so many that don't like Thunderdome because it's, you know, first movie, second movie, third movie just comes out of nowhere and it's campy and it's silly and it's high maintenance and there's kids and <laughs> singing. And like, I can completely understand why people were a little unhappy that it kind of went off into, you know, a different direction. But since I saw it, first it's stuck in my head and for me that's what Mad Max is and I kind of had to be older to really appreciate the first two yeah the yeah. first two are definitely bleak and slow moving and very Australian and I just I like them a lot but they're very different than Thunderdome yeah and it has a very different tone like you mentioned mm -hmm. you know it's a, it's a different tone to the film and I mean I don't know this film though it has the bleakness, but it also has like that element of hope mm -hmm. because that's what I really liked about it was that I, I feel like some post-apocalyptic movies, they just, they end it with, you know, still it being bleak, but uh, some post-apocalyptic movies, they actually go further and say, okay, we're going to give you a happy ending like night of the comet or um, Damnation Alley. Um, I'm probably naming movies mm -hmm. that you haven't seen for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, they're a little rusty in the back of my head, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah and, like, and even like the epilogue, one of the last uh, tracks, you know, in the soundtrack, it was kind of what I was thinking hearing it, was that it was hopeful, which was a little strange in a Mad Max film, mm -hmm. but it wasn't sentimental. Yeah, and I and I enjoyed that. That you knew that Max was again on his own, plotting, doing whatever he's doing. But there are groups out there who are doing well, who are moving forward, and humanity actually has a chance of moving on. So hopeful, yeah. but not sentimental, is what I felt about it. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really good way of looking at it. And then um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, well, let's let's get more into the background on the film. So George Miller, he had lost interest in the project after his friend and producer Byron Kennedy was killed in a helicopter crash while doing location scouting. And it may explain why Miller only handled the action scenes and then had George Ogilvy, is Ogilvy, that? I think. Ogilvy, 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 yeah. He handled rest and so it was actually, the film was dedicated to Byron Kennedy and you see that in the ending credits and stuff. So, so that's, that's pretty cool. And I don't know why this is a fact, but Max's eyes are different. Is that a thing? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's why David Bowie, one of he had been hit on the head as a young man, and one of his pupils was drastically dilated, and that's why mm-hmm. he looked like he had two different colored eyes. Oh. So yeah, and, and they they did that. I assume it was just contact lenses with Mel Gibson in this, but I noticed it in a lot of scenes too, from him getting what we're kind of assuming was bashed in the head one of the times in Road yeah. Warrior that one of his pupils was permanently dilated, dilated. all the way open. Yeah. yeah so it, it looks like the eye is darker when in fact what you're just seeing is the giant pupil. Yeah, yeah. and and I think um like you mentioned that that event in Road Warrior and it was like his car was forced off the road and he crashes and uh he gets that damage. So, yeah. That that it makes sense but it's like it's just kind of a little <laughs> off, you know. Um, oh, and then, you know, the sandstorm that actually occurred at the end of the film, it was actually real. And there was a camera plane that flew into it for some of the shots. And then the storm in its entirety hit the crew in the desert, forcing them to ride it out in their cars and wherever they could find uh, cover for that stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. And, yeah, and not having any time to prep for that, getting the cameras and the planes and everything to get some really great shots was really impressive for them. Yeah, yeah, because like, you know, they're in the desert. And yeah. so they can't, you know, they have to yeah. film when they can. And I mean, today, you know, they can do that with computer. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. with- and, and sandstorms can hit you in minutes. So yeah. it's not like they had time to get ready as, you know, they were in their cars huddled in the storm. So it just kind of hit and they just really got some great shots. Yeah. <laughs> Which was good though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this was also good was that the film was originally not a Mad Max film. It was more like a Lord of the Flies film about a tribe of children who found who were found by an adult and it became the third Mad Max film when George Miller says that Max is the one that finds the children isn't that different I could definitely see that like the first half or I should say the first third definitely feels like Mad Max and then when it gets to the children it it certainly goes toward a Lord of a Lord of the Flies type of feel so I could certainly see that yeah oh yeah definitely um And then, let's see, interviews about the Road Warrior. Uh, George Miller had said that, well, Max's world was after a collapse. It's not the post-World War III, which didn't quite make sense. But with the introduction uh, in Thunderdome, it explicitly sets out that it's after this World War III that actually occurred. So... So yeah, it would be definitely post-apocalyptic. Mm. <laughs> um, and then uh, when Max first meets Auntie, um, that saxophone is heard, and it's this guy that's blind, I believe, isn't it? Like, the guy is I be- blind. I believe so. I mean, his eyes look white, so I believe he's, he's yeah. supposed to be blind in the film, yeah. And the mu- the camera reveals that the music isn't the soundtrack, but it's happening within the movie. And it's as one of, you know, Auntie's men are doing it. And then this is a nod, of course, to Mad Max, where Max's wife plays the saxophone. 
And that's really different too, because it's like it's a callback to the original. So mm-hmm. I found that fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is the first one that Max actually uses a firearm other than a shotgun. He was an officer and he carried around a revolver, uh, but always reached for a shotgun. And so uh, this was included with, <laughs> like when he checked in all his weapons at Bartertown, <laughs> he's like, oh, you can't yeah. take any of that in. And he yeah. like, keeps piling all his yeah. weapons. And that, that scene now is cheesy because we've seen it so many times, but that was yeah. one of the you know first times we got to see it. So yeah, just weapon after weapon after weapon, he just keeps taking off himself. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it's like, well... I have to be prepared. I'm usually by myself. So. Uh, but yeah, it was just, I mean, that's one of those fun scenes to look at because it's like, yeah, the guy's on his own. What do you think he's going to do? You mm. think he's going to not have any weapons on him? So, uh, but yeah. And um, I thought it was also different that the secret title to this film was called The Desert World. So it made sense. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I thought the vehicles from the movie, they went on tour in 1985 and it appeared in car shows around Australia. Isn't that different? Yeah, I mean, at the time, Mad Max was massive for Australia. They didn't have a whole lot of other films that really did well internationally. So I can completely understand that. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Uh, oh, the wheel. Remember, like, right after the Battle of the Thunderdome itself, which was actually a pretty inventive way of having that fighting, you know? <laughs> they were on these rubber, like, bungee cords, mm-hmm. and they were able to bounce back and forth and fight and fight that way. Pretty pretty inventive and creative mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, but then once you're out of there, they had to determine where he was going to go. And they had that wheel and the different out- outcomes for that wheel said hard labor, death, acquittal, gulag, anti's choice, spin again, forfeit goods, underworld, amputation and life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and he got the wheel because he broke a deal. Mm-hmm. So normally, if you survive the Thunderdome, you're free. But he broke a deal, which is why he ended up having to uh, accept accept whatever <laughs> happened with the wheel. Yeah, yeah. Now, you notice there's a lot of rhyming in this movie. <laughs> Who runs Spotter Town? Master Blaster runs Spotter Town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sound bites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so fun. Um, also, it's a popular misbelief that the vehicle that Max is seen driving at the beginning is the Ford F-150. However, it's a modified 70s model of a Ford Fairlane that's used as the base vehicle. And although the exterior is modified, the vehicle is identified through remaining pieces of the car's interior and there's just different elements to it that show, oh, this is a 1970s sedan. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a truck, but, you know, it's not the original vehicle that was used. Um, what do you think of 
the thought that Terry Hayes, who was a co-screenwriter, what do you think about him saying that Bartertown is a heightened version of our world today? I think that uh, has as any far as, as far as the early 1980s, mm -hmm. um, I could definitely see that because you just think about music and fashion at the time was crazy. So just kind of going forward from there, I could very much see things ending up like that. And here we are all these years later, and I would probably still say it's a heightened version of our world today. Yeah. So, oh, I, even though things have changed so much, I think that statement still stands now. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, okay, so we've talked about a lot regarding the differences uh, between Thunderdome, Mad Max, and The Road Warrior. Now, um, when we look at the different elements of the story, why do you think that they changed the title of... Um, Say the second movie was considered to be Mad Max 2, but why do you think they changed it to The Road Warrior? Um, I'm not sure. It, it, to me, it was always, I could sometimes call it Mad Max 2 and sometimes call it The Road Warrior. So I kind of known it as both of them. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I, yeah, you would I wasn't sure would either. They would want to keep the name Mad Max with it so that people mm -hmm. would know it's a second film. But because at the time, not a lot of people had seen Mad Max. So if you call it Mad Max 2 and you haven't seen Mad Max 1, you might be less likely to go to the theater and buy a ticket for a second part if you haven't seen the first. Mm -hmm. But yeah. other than that, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I, I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so the rumors of the sequel for um that the sequel of mad max fury road takes place after mad max beyond thunderdome but that's not really relevant anymore because mad max fury road apparently according to george miller max is in his 30s in fury road and he's 40 years old in Thunderdome. So it's kind of like an in-between movie uh, once again. So yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Indiana Jones did the same thing. Uh, what was it? The second movie takes place before the first movie, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. Um, the, cool. Their timelines yep. are separated. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if that was the way George Miller went into making the films, considering it in the third spot, not the fourth spot, then it's his baby. So that's, that's just kind of mm -hmm. the way that we need to look at it. Oh yeah. It was his canon. <laughs> so that's, that's what we can, what we can consider. Oh, and since this movie, the term pig killer, which was like tattooed on that, on that guy's chest, mm -hmm. um, it's come to mean an outcast living on the edge of society. You could kind of see that with that guy. He was kind of mm -hmm. on the edge, you know, <laughs> not completely all there. Um, and then uh, the film references a novel by Russell Hoban called Ridley Walker about a hero traveling in post-apocalyptic England. Do you know anything about that novel? I do not, but it seems like a, a very logical uh, reference to make in this particular movie. So. <laughs> yeah, I... 
I, I've never read it. Um, it makes me wonder what it would be like because he would be in England. So would he be British? Would he just be some other type of <laughs> character? I don't know. Um, what did you think of the airplane that is seen through like the beginning of the movie and even throughout the movie? What do you think of that airplane? Uh, as a little kid, I was fascinated by it because I had never seen a plane that shape before. And even now, whenever I see it, it's just, just like, oh, it's so, I just kind of, I want to be one of those little kids who like runs up to it and crawls inside and is, you know, running around and grabbing onto like the little rope nets and sitting in the seat. And yeah, it just, it just kind of makes me want to jump inside because it's such a funny shape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, let's see. There were, wow, this blows my mind. There were 600 pigs in the underworld area uh, that buying that many could have hurt the pork market. So they rented it, rented them from a pig farmer. Can you imagine 600? That's a lot. Uh, All I can think of is the smell. And as they say in the film, the methane and the mess and uh, as much as I love fun sets and doing interesting things, I'm not entirely sure I would have wanted to have been there on the ground or in the middle of that set, to be completely honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't have been my first choice. So, okay, so there were two scenes that were cut from the film uh, to bring down the running time. The first is Max that he dreams of his murdered wife and son and then wakes up and cries. And he realizes that he's just become just as bad as the animals he used to hunt down as a cop. And then the other is Max taking a dying gecko to the top of the sand dune at night, sees the light of Barter Town and tells him they've reached tomorrow, tomorrow land. (laughs) And a few seconds of this scene are included in the music video. For Tina Turner's We Don't Need Another Hero, which I've never seen, but uh, that would be kind of funny to look at. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're talking to a gecko. Okay, that'll work. Yeah, and, <coughs> yeah saving those kids might have just brought back a little bit of his humanity. Is I would assume that's why they originally put that in the script. Well, and then yeah. there were there were other elements even to the film that showed that he was still trying to keep his humanity. Like, like when he was going to defeat Master or Blaster um, in Thunderdome, and then he saw what he looked like and that he wasn't this crazy, you know, madman. <laughs> he was actually, a, he was, um, well, he had Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And he realized that, and he's like, "This wasn't part of the deal." Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it, it humanized Max in a lot more ways, and it also endeared him to the kids that they had found him. And he, uh, you know, was like, "All right, I'm with these people. I'm gonna help them out because that's kind of what I do." <laughs> it kind of helps yeah. out those that are in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like like you said, he refused to kill Blaster when he had the opportunity and when he was supposed to. And even when he meets the kids, 
multiple times he walks away. He's like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. But the moment the kids are in trouble, he goes to help. So I think yeah. that's kind of his internal struggle where he's not going to deliberately cause harm to somebody. But if somebody is in harm, he will go out of his way to help them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because it's like, it just, it made a real point. Because even um, like Terry Hayes, who was the uh, the screen part of the screenwriter, he wanted to kill Max off for this film, which I guess would have made sense considering it would be a conclusion to a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, I mean, like you know, we were we just talked about this that it didn't really explain why Max didn't kill Blaster, but you know, you look at his thoughts of how maybe well maybe this was the case because it's possible that blaster reminded max of bino the autistic farmhand who was living at may swayze's farm in mad max and it was when jesse and sprog were killed or murdered by the toe cutter and his motorcycle gang or um like we had talked about that there could have been some humanity left in Max and he felt it wrong and inhuman to kill this mentally disabled blaster. And then there's some that believe that Bino and blaster are the same character, which I don't know how that's possible, but they're played by different actors and it's possible Bino may have survived that nuclear war that is discussed but um one of the things that you know always stands out in my mind is the the ending scene because max is by himself again max is by himself again and he he's left with pretty much nothing and (laughs) like usual (laughs) yeah he just walks off into the desert and i think he has water or something but you know you don't really know what the end of Max is. And sometimes that's a a unique way of looking at it. But then uh, even with that ending, it flashes to the kids and the couple grownups that are there and they're in a city and they're safe and in amongst, you know, things that they can actually get to, like they're in safety and, you know, having water and food and everything so i don't know what do you think (laughs) uh yeah i did like the ending um they never made it clear as to whether or not they went back and got the rest of the kids um but i i i very much feel like they did um logistically there was only two or three girls in that plane. And uh, I don't think we need to go into too much detail about how having that many children is just not going to work. There's only, there's only a couple of girls and some of them are children. We don't need to go into that. Um, But just just beyond that, like I really feel like uh, again, they kind of got lost in that sandstorm. So it might've taken them a while to figure out how to get back to where they were. Um, But I just, I just don't feel like they could have moved on without at least trying to go back and finding the rest of the kids. So, Although we don't necessarily see any of those kids in that last shot, I really feel like they went back and got them. Yeah. Uh, and that, especially once you see all the lights in the buildings, how when she's mm-hmm. her voiceover, when she's talking about lighting buildings, and there's like 15 buildings that all have lights in them. Yeah. So yeah. no 
knowing that they wouldn't abandon their friends and they're in safety and they now have a few adults with them who can kind of, you know, teach them and, uh, you know, help them, you know, kind of usher them into this new world. So yeah. I like the ending again without it being sentimental. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Uh, so let's get into talking more on the score for Mad Max Thunderdome, Beyond Thunderdome. Awesome. So what are your initial thoughts in regard to the score by Maurice Jarre? In general, I feel like he had so much fun creating the score. <laughs> That's just my first thought is he had to have had a lot of fun. Um, I liked all the metallic sounds and the you know industrial sounds that he put into the music. Um, I could be biased because I am a percussionist, but <laughs> I did like you know also the you know creepy intense uh, moments that he put in. You could feel the desperation. You could feel you know masses of the dirty people. Uh, then when it with the kids it's all light and airy and frivolous and kind of this sort of music that the kids would like to listen to and he mixes all of that interesting industrial stuff with at times a very traditional orchestra sounds yeah and he did just i thought he did just a wonderful job at mixing all of those styles together yeah and then knowing that maurice jar is this well-known film composer that has done stuff even back to the 60s. I mean, he was, you know, this French Oscar winner. Um, and he, you know, he followed in the two other movies' footsteps in a way. But, you know, when we have that giant race in the desert uh, with the airplane and everything, you have, like, this expanded, like, epic sound that Maurice really brings out in the score. And I really liked it that, well, like even like you brought out regarding the percussion items, but then I found this really interesting. He used several different instruments that no one would have thought of using like anvils, a didgeridoo, um, the wailing, Give me the name again. I can't think of the name. <laughs> that Martinot. Oh, uh, yes. The, uh, the owned Martineau. Yes. Martineau? Yes. Yeah. Owned Martineau. Yeah. I think that's what it was. And then even with the saxophone capturing that, that mayhem of Bartertown itself. And um, what did you think of some of the themes that we get? Uh, maybe just thinking about say, Bartertown itself or uh, Thunderdome. What do you think of those? Uh, I like how there was a mix of sounds. Uh, like, for example, Thunderdome uh, has really, really quiet parts and really, really loud parts, and they go back and forth kind of manically. But that's kind of what it's like being inside the Thunderdome. You're swinging and nothing is happening. And then you hit the ground and bam, like it's just, <laughs> it's like, like I, I thought everything that he did with the score, he really uh, shaped it to whatever it was that he was, you know, making the music for. Yeah. And I think that's also another good point that some composers are really good at doing because they'll have like, uh, they'll actually visually see the film footage and be able to create the music that way. And I think that's a really good way of doing the film or, you know, the music for the film, because otherwise 
they have no idea what they're composing. Or, you know, they'll arrange something, but they won't have, you know, anything to look upon to uh, see exactly what's going on with that. Um, but then, like, the main title, it's got this, like, explosive opening uh, for the film. And let's say Max's theme opens the second cue of a dissonant, eerie piece for the uh, Ons Martinet and then the didgeridoo. And I really like that instrument. It's just a wonderful Australian instrument that you can hear in, in different films too, you know. You hear it in uh, Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> which will be a you know, future episode that we'll be mm -hmm. doing. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I very much like the didgeridoo. And yes, it does scream Australia. So there's a lot of Australian films with it. But uh, specifically uh, for it being Max's theme, it's sort of strange and mysterious and a little bit weird in your you kind of have to like listen a little more carefully to hear all the sounds. Mm -hmm. And for me, that kind of explains Max a little yeah. weird, kind of strange, kind of mysterious. <laughs> and I was like that, that perfectly sums up Max right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then like, I just like how Maurice Jar used the steel drums, the anvils, a plethora of different metallic percussion instruments. It kind of reminded me of what Jerry Goldsmith would do with, say, the score of uh, Planet of the Apes. I, I, I don't know why, but that score really stands out to me because it's so unique, and he would use these different instruments and different, like, steel pans and, you know, different things to create noise. And, um, and it seems like Jar was able to do that, too. And I just, I really liked it. And then... Um, it's also offset by his, like, Jar's personal, like, suspense and drama style. Um, do you, can you think of, like, other films that he was able to do this with, like, having these stylistic-type feelings for it? Uh, I don't know him well enough to know, uh, to like really have a good idea. I mean, I know some of the movies, the other movies he's done, but I don't know that well enough. Um, but as you were saying about like the anvils and some of the other things like that, uh, we tend to call those found objects. Mm -hmm. So it's literally just objects that you find that you turn into musical instruments. So uh, just, you know, metal pillars and two by fours and just, rocks like random things that you would find and you start to make music with them like that's kind of there are entire scores of people using found instruments and not real <laughs> instruments uh to throw something together and i'm i've always been again i'm a drummer but i've always been fascinated by that sort of thing <laughs> so if, if he did that in any of his other scores then i'm sure they're just as fantastic as this one is well yeah and like a couple of examples that he's done is enemy mine and, I mean, that's a very quiet score. It's not very action-packed at all. I mean, it's between one guy and an alien on a planet. And uh, then, then it, it goes into different types of instruments, like um, his project for Walk in the Clouds. And I didn't realize that he did that score. Wow, yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, and that's a, you know, a romantic film. And it's just, it's very different from this style. But 
this, like like this, the queue of Thunderdome, it has one of those impressive constructs. It's got a rich but slightly damaged sound with a fanfare and flourish that really, you know, it reminds you of the epicness and the, uh, the fanfare of, say, Miklos Roja's Ben-Hur score. And the epic sounding and you could just like close your eyes and and listen to the music and really hear uh how like explosive or how um impressed you know you can be by the musical instruments being used i don't know that i'm, I'm trying to put it in <laughs> what do you think uh yeah it's yeah especially with that thunderdome track uh like you know the quiet parts are a little bit of timpani or some other kind of drum or maybe a little bit of didgeridoo and then when the explosion comes in it's big cymbals and brass and it just he just goes to such extremes uh in some of his songs that you know when it's when it's big it catches your attention you mm -hmm. can't not pay attention to what's happening in the music you can't not pay attention to what's happening on the screen so. Yeah, and I think they pair very well, like mm -hmm. the score and the film. It pairs really, really well. I also like uh, just the, well, and then how we talked about the differences of how the music is when he's with the children and how it becomes this gentle, like almost spiritual music. And it's very pretty. It's like uh, there's a choir and you know, it's soft and gentle. Yeah, and for that children's track, it seemed to me like it was the perfect kind of song that the kids would play, and it was the perfect kind of song that the kids would listen to. Mm -hmm. And I was, it was very curious as to how he was able to accomplish both of those things, something that the kids would like and something that the kids would be able and be interested in playing. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. And then we get to, like, explaining about the 12-minute cue of the big chase. <laughs> this, this really has a lot of power to the score, and it just, it, <laughs> it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, one of them. I mean, I like the whole movie, but uh, it's one of my favorite action scenes in the movie because they're, you know, dealing with, he's having to jump onto the other vehicles and fight these guys off. And, and then you have the guy that has the mask and the, the ponytail that's not even his hair. <laughs> and he's real short, you know, that the guy from the very beginning mm -hmm. and Max kind of like beats him up with a, <laughs> with a stick. Mm -hmm. Uh uh, his no. name is Bar. I'm trying to think. Is it Metal Bar? Maybe. It's, yeah. Iron I Bar. Say it's metal. Iron it's Bar. Iron there we bar. go. There yeah. we go. Yeah, yeah I knew it had it. Bar in it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you yeah, know. For that, for that big chase, I really like that it had a slow build to it. Because you kind of have to, like, let yourself get into it. And once you get into it, there's a few tracks where he puts a march 
with a snare drum right in the middle. And you would think that a snare drum march is not going to work in Mad Max. And yeah. he does it in like three or four different tracks. And yeah. every time he does it, it's fantastic. I'm like, yeah. you've got anvils and you've got a didgeridoo and you've got children singing and you've got <laughs> timpanies and you've got cymbals. And now you're doing a march right in the middle of a chase scene, like yeah. in, in the, this post-apocalyptic world. Like, I, I don't know how he does it, but I love the march right in the middle of the song. Yeah. It's like a wild ride, you know, you just, <laughs> and, and you just go with it. You just, you can't just ignore it. You just, you go with it and it's like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> and you know, it's just, it's very expressive. And I, I don't know. I, I really like, I've, I've really come to appreciate this film over the years, but it's like, it, it's one of my favorites. So, uh, so what I'm going to do is, we're going to play some uh, first of the cues uh, that we'd be playing. First, I'd like to use the unused original main title theme. Uh, and then we have Max's theme and the desert. And then the barter town theme. Erica, what do you think of these? Uh, for the unused original main theme, uh, the, first thing that came to mind was that it wasn't a typical main theme and I actually kind of like that um, mm -hmm. with you know so many bleak post-apocalyptic post worlds uh, you always get something that's just very dreary or and like this was is was I mean it had some dreary elements but it still had some exciting elements and it was still very Australian and it, it just yeah, it just it wasn't a typical main theme and I actually kind of liked it um again with max's theme i love the didgeridoo um and then with the barter town stuff i loved all the found instruments the metallic yeah. and the metal and the just being around masses of people they're all you know trying to stay away from radiation fallout and it just it just just sort of this like mess that all works perfectly together uh you know inside the film yeah and you know you hear that in in other films too like like it may be in front of a uh like a a town scene you know like where there's a bunch of people and there's like a market or something um i think of conan the the destroyer or um the princess bride and the florin dance and you know these different elements of these different composers that use these different instruments to really like bring out these elements of different noises or or something like that so i i like that too so um so now um what well what i like about even the original theme is that it gives us that australian outback post-apocalyptic world feel and then um i also really enjoy max's theme as well so it's just great it's really great so um, so let's play those tracks.
So next, I'd like to play Heartbeat, Heartbeat Pig Rock, uh, The Children, and Thunderdome. Now, what are your thoughts on these? Uh, yeah, as we kind of went over a little bit earlier with the children's track, I really love that it was something that the kids would like. It was something that the kids would listen to, the kids would play, and it has a sort of precarious position in the film it's about 35 40 percent into the film and it's a very sudden tone change where max is kicked out of barter town and now he's coming across this new thing so i think the song does a really good way of kind of gently nudging you into the fact that this movie is going in a completely different direction than the first 
third of the movie and what the first two movies had done. So I think it's yeah. a really good transition. And then of course, Thunderdome is loud and quiet and brass <laughs> and it just kind of madness. And I like every moment of it. Yeah. Okay. So we've discussed some of the movie quite thoroughly. I want to get your thoughts on what do you think of them putting that giant head on Mel Gibson and having him traipse across the desert. What do you think? Uh, why, why do I think they did that? Oh, I don't Is that know. what you're asking? I'm, no, I'm asking, what do you think of it? Uh, I mean, it like to me, it felt like, one, it was going to be intensely hot inside there, so it's more likely he's going to die faster, and two, they don't want him knowing where he's going. So it was just, it just kind of felt like this extra step of we're kicking you in the backside just because yeah. we feel like it. Yeah. So, and of course it's silly, which is always enjoyable. It was kind of like a court jester type here. We'll put a, you know, giant head on you type thing. So yeah, yeah it was just kind of an extra, yeah, here you go. You're not going to live anyways. So let's embarrass you while we can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Cause it's just, you know, there's, there's like certain ambience. That's what I was thinking of there's an ambience to the children theme to uh to that whole environment and and it's almost music that you can have like in the background if you're relaxing or something because there's like this sound that's just like almost dreamlike you know mm-hmm. so yeah so all right well let's uh let's play these cues
All right, so sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. Um, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for Soundtrack Alley's intro music, and you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Uh, Erica, where can people find you? Uh, the easiest way would be on my website, which is ericachristie.com. That's E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E. And pretty much all of my social and everything is right there. All right. And you can find me um, through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, at randallandridge1. Find me at soundtrackalley.net and at Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And you can also email me at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. And I'd really like some comments because I never get any emails. So those of you listening, please email me if you have any thoughts regarding the music you hear or the movies that we're talking about. Or just to tell you you're doing a wonderful job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could even use that. So, <laughs> so the last things that, and um, all these links are going to be in the show notes. So, uh, so that'll be good as well. Um, the last cues I'll be playing today is The Big Chase, Max and Savannah Escape, Barter Town Destruction, and Epilogue. What are your thoughts, Erica? Uh, yeah, we spoke briefly on the big chase and the epilogue. Um, the big chase, I like the slow build and then that little march that just kind of thrown right into the middle of it. And the epilogue, um, hopeful but not sentimental. Like it just did a really good job of kind of closing out the film. Uh, for the two in the middle, the Max and Savannah escape, I really liked the full orchestra that just kind of happens in the middle. And especially all of the, you know, very energetic, uh, frenetic timpani that just kind of hits you right in the middle of that song. And for Bartertown Destruction, I really, really love the organ. Out of all the other instruments we've already mentioned, this one is organ heavy, and it just gives you this like weight in your chest. And this organ just comes out of nowhere and just completely takes over the song. And I love it. it's It's loud, and it's creepy, and it's kind of disturbing. And uh, of course, there's a little march, another snare drum march <laughs> in the middle of this one, even while the organ is playing. And yeah, I just especially like the organ on that one. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, so we're going to end the show by playing these last cues and until next time happy listening
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Music